Welcome to Sustainable Business Fridays. I'm your host, Katie Elman. Sustainable Business Fridays is the first podcast of its kind, bringing together students in Bard College's MBA in Sustainability program with leaders in business, sustainability, finance, not-for-profits, social entrepreneurship, and more. Twice monthly, these conversations go live via iTunes and Google Play. This week, I'm joined by Bard MBA students Catherine Tedrow, Heather Bowden, Lauren Hill, and Nick Shore. We'll be listening in on their conversation with John DeGraff, author, filmmaker, and executive director of Take Back Your Time and co-founder of the Happiness Initiative. So it's my pleasure to be joined by Catherine Tedrow. Good morning. Hello. Good morning. Uh, Nick Shore. Good morning. And Lauren Hill. Good morning. And thanks so much for <laughs> joining me today. We're glad to be here. Thanks, Katie. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you for having us. Tell me what the inspiration for this was and um, how you were able to connect with John. So, yeah, we are all researching kind of four different aspects of overconsumption. And in the process, um, we found the documentary Affluenza, which was produced in the late 90s. Um, and John DeGraff was a part of the team who produced the documentary and then also part of a team that released several editions of the book Affluenza. Um, and so we realized that one of our professors from, one of our former professors from Pinchot was connected to John DeGraff and we told him about our project and asked him if he would mind sitting down for a conversation about what's been happening since the last edition of Affluenza, which I believe was a few years ago. Um, and then specifically looking at the issue of overconsumption in the 21st century and how technology and the internet has transformed overconsumption in the United States. Now, the interview was recorded in the fall of 2016, and there's it's pretty significant that you had this conversation at that time based on what was happening with the presidential election, feelings around that, or even just where you think... Um, we're moving in regards to the topic of overconsumption um, this year and beyond. Sure. I feel like a big topic in this year's election was this concept of the American dream, which was uh, a large part of our project for us. Uh, and I think for us coming to this realization that the American dream has a lot to do with consuming um, and overconsumption and what it means to be striving for this thing. Yeah, so the a really interesting moment was when we were setting up our call with John DeGraff. He ended up saying to Lauren, you know, this was the wholesale certification of the entire paradigm that we were building our systems analysis around of wealth and overconsumption, that Trump getting elected in our society was, I mean, he had built his personal brand on wealth and his his getting elected was the certification of that wealth and that striving for the American dream, that it's still uh, achievable. And we wanted to create a systems analysis that really challenged whether or not it is or not. This interview with John was recorded in the days following the November 2016 presidential election. 
The views expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect the opinions of Bard College and or Bard Graduate Programs and Sustainability. John, this is Catherine. We've been working on a system that's mostly centering around overconsumption in the U.S. since the 2000s and specifically around our generation and this general disaffection, this lack of connectivity, yet more connectivity with devices and social media. And we couldn't have agreed more with what you said about the certification of overconsumption being wholeheartedly condoned by the US on Tuesday. And we're extremely worried about that, but we're definitely trying to figure out what the the biggest leverage points in the system are for change concerning income inequality, wealth stratification, how overconsumption and the overrepresentation of wealth in America plays out in the system. But when we landed on your documentary on affluenza, it was just, it was really interesting for us because we were kids in the late 90s and to see the next 20 years forward for us was really impactful going back and watching the documentary. And so if you wouldn't mind just talking to us a little bit about what you've seen since making that documentary, we'd love to hear what you're thinking this week and what you were thinking before this week. Well, you know, it's it's a little complicated. I mean, of course, when we made the documentary, it was actually in, in certain ways a very unique time in the last 30 plus years. It was the one period in that time in which incomes were rising for everybody and there was a sense that there's the economy is just on the way up. There were talked about at the end of history. Uh, everything is, is going good. It's all going to continue as it was. I mean, I didn't believe that, but, but that's, that's what the society uh, tended to believe. And so we focused more on how that philosophy was a real danger for obviously the environment and, and various things uh, over the long run. And uh, some about inequality and other things, but I think we, we, we heard from Elizabeth Warren, who was then a Harvard professor and not a senator, obviously, and she made an important corrective, basically saying that for increasing numbers of people, this isn't about consuming a lot of stuff, this is about staying afloat as the prices of real, you know, key things like basic housing and healthcare and uh, higher education and all of these things are were suddenly exploding because of policies that we did in the late 70s and 80s, and that was true. And so what we actually saw was that median incomes not risen, and it just barely kept pace with increasing inflation, and in certain parts of the country, it's become very difficult for people to keep up. And for those at the bottom, of whom there are more, even worse, they, they were working two, three jobs just to try to, to stay uh, afloat. Inequality is obviously the most significant factor that somehow we have to deal with if we're going to have reasonable consumer patterns about real needs. What really bothers me is that I think we took a vote on Tuesday to exacerbate inequality, to do more tax cutting for the people who already have, to, to cut the programs and the other kinds of things that benefit benefit people who don't have. Uh, instead of, of making college affordable or free, which we certainly could do, we voted to go the opposite way and we'll see different things. Now, when I was a college student, college was free. I went to the University of California at Berkeley for free. And we could do this in the 1960s 
but somehow when we're three times or four times as rich today, can't do these things. So a lot of that just simply has to be pointed out. And obviously the society had a lot of problems then, and certainly things like race and, and discrimination were worse than they are today. And, you know, it was obviously horrid to be a gay person or something like that. And so we've made improvements in those areas. But, but inequality in the material sense is just getting wider and wider and wider. And I, I think it was the uh, power of the Sanders campaign that it really pointed that out. We have to address the inequality issue, and we have to address what really led us to a lot of these problems was the tax cutting and all the things that were part of the Reagan revolution, the whole concept of trickle-down, which just simply it caused the opposite. Wealth gushed up, and conspicuous consumption was praised instead of criticized. got to somehow understand that, and then we, we still have to understand the fact that we cannot solve our problems by simply growing the economy more and more. And this is something that both Democrats and Republicans don't understand. And the Democrats don't have a different view about what to do with growth. And I, and I agree more with that. They want to distribute it more fairly. And they have a different idea about how to get it. But the concept that somehow 2.5% economic growth, which we currently have, uh, ought to be increased to 3 or 4 or, as Trump said, even 5, when what that would mean is a doubling of our consumption over a decade and a half, uh, the impact of that on the climate and the environment is just almost too difficult to fathom. So unless we, from both ends, get people to understand that, that we have to turn away from the idea that the answer to the good life is greater and greater consumption, and then instead it's things like more time and more nature and more social connection, and uh, that people will not only be healthier, they'll be happier, and we will do less abuse. So it's a whole different worldview, I think, than the worldview that dominates our country right now. So that definitely the, the unsustainability of overconsumption is part of what drew us to this topic, because we want to focus on the 21st century, is the role of technology and social media. So fake connection by putting things in front of people's faces constantly that point out their relative lack of income and how that impacts their pursuit of material success, how at the same time because of our access to other people's lives, our technology in a lot of ways spurs overconsumption and is just feeding this cycle. I'd be curious to hear your perspective on that. Well, I think you're absolutely right about that. In the first uh, version of Affluenza, I, I had a joke idea about what I called dot communism. Uh, that, you know, we were in the middle of this dot-com boom where everything was about the Internet and then selling things on the Internet. And that kind of came to a degree when, I mean, it wasn't as successful as people thought in that short run, but over the long run, it's enormous. Uh, Sales are simply increasing, increasing through the Internet, and the Internet for all the value of it, and it has value, and there's good information to obtain from it, is just awash with constant commercials. Some pages you can't even read because they're flipping around so much because there's always new ads popping up, so you can't even read the articles. So what we're getting is an environment, particularly online and through our devices, that is totally saturated with messages to consume more. And, and then if we look at how Facebook or Instagram or some of these things work, a big part of how people use them is, through the selfies and the other things is to say, look at me, look how exciting and wonderful my life is, look where I just went, what I just bought, um, et cetera. So all of that tends to make their friends you know, Facebook friends, whatever they are, virtual or real, feel, well, I don't quite hate, you know, my life isn't quite like that. 
but a lot of this is kind of fake because when you go deeper into it, it was just a cover story of Time Magazine right now is about anxiety and depression among teenagers in America. And a lot of them talk about just this sort of thing. They're seeing everybody who's posting these things about how happy they are, how popular their lives are. They feel miserable in response. And they may think that the answer is to just just to shop, to find more things. So these tools can be good. Certainly, I use Facebook really extensively to try to communicate messages. I learn from the internet. I love the quick access to, to articles and material and things that I need as I'm working on writing and things like that. I understand the benefits, but it's a double-edged sword. And the more it becomes under the domination of the marketing world, the more problematic that will be for our society. And a big part of this is just where are the values here? Where do we really want to go as a society? There are positive signs. Uh, there are companies that are now increasingly saying, you know, we don't want you to be online all the time. We don't want to send you emails that after work and on the weekends. We want you to go on vacation and take time off. I see all those things as really positive, but they're running in the face of a tide that is fundamentally going in the opposite direction. I uh, want to understand that these are tools that are useful to us, but they cannot become our masters, and they are themselves in the service simply of people who want to sell us stuff. Right. John, this is Nick here. Off of what you were talking about, people that are starting to feel a sense of depression due to what they're seeing online, I think that these social media sites are selling us this sense of human connection and that in reality that how easy it is for us to talk to someone completely on the other side of the world is amazing, but especially with seeing what's happened over the past few days, this real sense of disconnect that there seems to be in our country and, you know, larger than our country, the world. Can you speak to the to the disconnect that social media and people living their lives online brings? Well, I, I think that it is so complex. You know, I have met people internationally who I've later become friends with in reality through things like Facebook. Depending on how it's used, there's certainly a positive side to these kinds of things, but there's also a certain unreality of it, the kind of fear that gets represented. I don't see that as much from everybody's Facebook posting and things like that as much as what's coming out from the various sites that are stoking race baiting and hatred and all of that. And the fact that people, particularly when it comes to news and increasingly getting this very narrow sources. We used to complain about media when I was in college. You know, I long for that because at least we were all watching the same stuff and we were talking about the same things and maybe the facts weren't always right. But there wasn't some deliberate effort to distort in pursuit of an ideology. The impact of Fox News, and it's the most extreme, but there are many others, but it has been stunning because this is an echo chamber that people are getting around the clock. And you don't know about it. I talk to people who watch this in another world because they're constantly getting stuff. I mean, their whole interpretation of what just happened the last couple of days is that the country has gone mad with crazy people on the street protesting and these people who should all be locked up who are protesting the election. I mean, and that's all their focus has been. It's full of photos of people in the street. They did the same thing with the Black Lives Matter thing. While people like me felt like, wow, this is terrible what's happening to, to these black folks at the hands of the police. 
and I, I don't hate the police. I know the police have a tough job, but, but clearly life for young black men is not the same, and they singled out. I mean, when you do something about that, well, on the whole other side, it was all about, oh no, these people are just rioting. They don't appreciate America. They hate the cops. The cops are there saving us. And so we have become polarized into two different worlds, and it is a danger because it makes it very difficult to, to figure out how to talk about any kinds of common values, whether they be those things or whether they be how much should we consume, how should we live. So just thinking about the drivers of this system of overconsumption and who's really winning, there seems to be quite a bit of debate over the links between inequality and growth and where the threshold is. We personally also subscribe to (laughs) questioning whether or not growth is good. I'd be curious to know your perspective on who's really benefiting from this system and if we were looking at potentially a group of people or a system of beliefs that is driving the system forward both historically and then also in the 21st century, do you see an interconnection between those people and also the people who potentially are benefiting from our divided political discourse. I think you make a very good point here, and, and I think arguments can be made effectively on both sides about whether uh, inequality spurs growth or hampers growth, because it hampers growth in the sense that there's less consumer spending for some people at, uh, at the bottom who spend higher amounts of their income. So you can certainly argue that inequality hampers growth, and that even though we've had a lot of growth, we might have even more or things more evenly distributed. But then the next question is, can, can the planet afford that kind of growth? And is it necessarily, particularly when, when it's focused on material things, is it necessarily making people happier or healthier or other things? And that's where I would argue that the problems start to come in is that we need to keep people having jobs so they can have livelihoods. We understand that. But I mean, a lot of focus was made in the election on the impacts of NAFTA and trade deals and stuff, even by Bernie, who I supported. Uh, now, I think those things mattered, but I actually don't think they're as important to the problems with employment for people as increasing automation and productivity increases, which are enhanced by economic growth. And so what we're seeing, we're, we're going to see, I mean, there's some concern that, that within 18 months, we'll see robots as cashiers and McDonald's. And so all of this kind of stuff means that people are going to be technologically put out of work. And the answer is, how do you provide for them? And that's what we have to really start thinking about. One answer is that we just grow more. We just all that gets spent and we have new products that come out and those put people to work and we just grow so fast that it doesn't matter. Well, I think that's a that's a bad strategy because I don't think the biosphere can handle that. So I think the other strategy is two things essentially. One is, is reducing work and sharing work, and that's been talked about for a century since Keynes and everything, that, about how that's what we really need to do if we want to keep people working as we automate and destroy jobs, and so that everybody can work less. They won't necessarily make more than they did, but their lives can be more secure. But um, what kind of growth occurs needs to be in the area of things that are less materially centered, health, education, and what, leisure time. I mean, major things like leisure time as part of growth, then the growth is less problematic. But we don't do that. Leisure time is considered a waste of time. So we need new measures to figure that out. And then we simply need to share work and reduce work and supplement it for many people with a guaranteed annual income. Not a big one, but one that keeps them above the poverty line. 
It was interesting to see in the affluenza documentary so long ago, the co-housing and the simple living movement. And you were talking about leisure time and the incorporation at work of more respect of your personal time and your personal life and that counter movement to overconsumption and overworking yourself for the goal of wealth. We're for MBA students that are focusing entirely on social justice and sustainability. We are making so much progress in business, in every industry that we're involved in, but we're perplexed by the phenomenon of mindfulness. Time Magazine, I think the cover was mindfulness not that long ago. There's a, been a sweeping movement. And how do you feel like the, the change in our political system is going to affect this more altruistic movement that the U.S. was subscribing to within the last couple of years? I mean, that big part of the happiness movement. I was an advisor to the government of Tom. went to Bhutan in 2013 to work with the prime minister and the cabinet on their happiness program and stuff. So I'm very interested in this stuff to the extent that we need both personal and policy change. And to the extent that it just becomes about improving one's personal behaviors and attitudes, that's where I get off track. And that's where I think some of the mindfulness stuff has been fluffy, to be honest. Yeah. Um, because we, we have to keep our eye on the policy balls, too, of what's going on. And I think what the impact of this election, what I see tragically, is that Trump is calling for things like, you know, simply deregulating fossil fuels. I mean, that's exactly the opposite of what we ought to be doing in a time of, of climate change and things. I mean, they're going to try to push through this pipeline that the Indians are fighting in North Dakota. People have to get out there and support the Native Americans in stopping these kinds of things. But... This is the whole idea. Growth is going to get jobs, and the jobs are going to come because we go back to this high-consumptive, fossil-fuel-burning economy, and it's just insane, you know? But God knows this is what people voted for, whether they understood it or not. I don't know. I have no idea why people voted. You know, to me, it's inconceivable that people... I, I have my issues with Hillary Clinton, but it's absolutely inconceivable to me that people voted for Donald Trump. So... Um, given the state of the world and the state of our environment and the obvious impacts of climate change and things that, are, that we're seeing around us. So, I don't know, you know, it's hard to be optimistic. Uh, I do think maybe we, we need to start changing our direction on things. Right now I'm working on a long article about families and children and how horribly children do in the United States in comparison to other wealthy countries. And we really rank at the very bottom, according to UNICEF or OECD or any of these things in terms of well-being for children. And I think this is a point to try to make. Uh, Clinton talked a little bit about families and children, but I think we have to stress that we're doing really badly for kids. And the conservatives can say for adults, oh, they should pick themselves up by their bootstraps and earn their living and stuff. How do you say that to a five-year-old? So we clearly have to focus on how do we change both life for kids and the values of kids. So that what gets value is the things that are good for them. And in the happiness movement, we call those things happiness skills. I can send you some of the work that we did in Tom, kind of looking at how also how we measure things, which I think essential. We won't turn this society around until we have a different measurement of success than the gross domestic product. Something that struck me in Donald Trump being elected is realizing just how many people felt excluded from both political processes and economic processes. And so despite the fact that there has been a lot of movement, particularly in business, that's reassuring in the last decade around sustainability and inclusion and human rights and social justice, clearly there's enough people in this country who feel 
feel excluded from the progress that's being made, that they felt like Donald Trump was their best alternative. So I'm curious what your opinion is on whether or not addressing the gaps in our country and and in the world in terms of how people feel about their participation and their disenfranchisement, if that requires a paradigm shift, or if there are ways for both our politics and our businesses to shift the way they operate in their communities so that people don't feel so excluded. Well, you know, I hope so. I mean, I think what Bernie Sanders got going was a very positive thing. I'm not one of those people who believes he was cheated out of the election. I think that he simply didn't make it. But I think he really got some great dialogue going, and that was important to getting people to think about that. And I think a lot of that's going to happen. We will be forced in the next four years at least to concentrate our efforts for positive change at the local and state level. And there are many good opportunities to do that. The news was completely different depending on a part of the country. Not the main news, which was that Trump got elected, but the overall. Now, the larger news about how election went. It was very based on where you were. Here in my state of Washington, we did all kinds of good things. Uh, an election was something to be totally cheered about. And if the nation had gone the way my state went, we'd all be thrilled because when we passed the thirteen and a half dollar minimum wage for the state, passed, we passed paid sick leave for the state, passed to get rid of Citizens United. Trump lost by 20 points here. At states like Washington and Oregon, California, New York, Massachusetts, and Vermont, you've got to start working at the local and state level for positive legislation that deals with in a, in a stronger way with inequality and also with environmental protection and all of those kinds of things because obviously we're not going to get it at the national level in the next four years. So then bringing it to more macro and the concept mm-hmm. of growth that we were talking about earlier in your work in Bhutan, especially in the United States, based on our culture and our traditions in this country over the last couple of centuries. What do you think the likelihood is of us as a country moving away from this notion of growth is good and moving more toward indicators that are better metrics of true happiness and wellness for our population? It can go many directions, and sometimes you can be really surprised just when you think things are the worst, that something changes for the better. I I recognize that a year before the Berlin Wall came down, people said that would never happen. And it was the yeah, total opposite feeling. So change can happen rather suddenly. I think the ground has to be prepared. And that's why I do believe that particularly the work around happiness and well-being and trying to push the country to think more about that, how we measure that, what counts for it, why social connection and relationships and health and nature and all these things are more important for people feeling happy and having a good sense of their lives than piling up stuff. It can't be just we pass a minimum wage or isolated legislation. There has to be a larger framework and vision behind that. I'm connected with some people now called the Next System Project that are trying to get around that. There's a new uh, economy coalition and spend another group trying to do some of that stuff. We have to push that different vision and those different values forward because ultimately I think that's what it comes down to is the value choices that we make and whether or not people understand that there wouldn't be necessarily anything wrong with consumption if it didn't have any consequences. But it does, and those consequences are going to be especially hard on our kids and grandkids, and that has to be stressed. Right? Americans love their kids, but they're not doing well by them at all. Their kids are the most stressed in the rich world. The parents are the most stressed. We have to understand those things. And we have to understand that it's fair enough that people are frustrated and upset and unhappy, but Donald Trump is not the answer. <laughs> this is Heather. I used to be a Republican. <laughs> I had a value shift. And what's been your experience of people who have had value shifts? 
That's a good point. Question. When I was a kid, I was raised Republican. And so, you know, when I was 18, 19 years old, I was still Republican. Then I went to college and the Vietnam War happened and a bunch of other things. So it's usually that there's some event that changes, forces you to rethink what you're thinking. It's very clear that young people voted in much bigger numbers against Trump than anybody else, than people in any other part of the society. And that's hopeful. They voted even stronger for Bernie. I think at one point I saw that voters between 18 and 24, 59% of all of them voted for Bernie in the primaries against all 18 other candidates, you know? So that's that's an amazing thing. That says that these young people want something different and uh, have some different sense of values. And I think the impacts of the climate, um, they get it, you know, they, they're not already ideologically disposed to these kinds of hardline market ideas that don't allow things like the impacts of climate change to seep in. And I wish I had easier answers, but we're all in a period right now where we're going to have to do some strategy thinking and soul searching. Because at least nobody I knew, especially where I live, because I live in Seattle, which is a bubble. I mean, we voted 86% Democratic. We have to do some soul searching and figure out where the heck things are going to go. Because clearly a lot of people in the country don't think like us. <laughs> I sympathize because I too live in Seattle, and when I started oh. coming, yeah, I I just come here now, for school. You know, is this Heather? Or? Yes, this is Heather. Uh-huh. Uh, both Catherine and I live in Seattle. Oh, studying at Bard now. Exactly. Part online and then once a month in person. And when I first started going to New York, I just kept thinking, I want to go back to my Seattle bubble. I want to go back to my Seattle bubble. What's been your experience in engaging, for example, those people or people with different values? I know in Washington, it's not as easy because we're so far. We're in our bubble. But what kind of work has been done around this? Affluenza was an interesting film and an interesting book, especially as a film, it actually really did cut across political lines. We had a lot of sympathy from conservatives with affluenza who also had issues with over-materialism and its impacts and, and stuff we had in about kids and marketers targeting children really appealed to conservatives. And so that's what leads me to believe that this stuff about kids is the way you have to begin that conversation. But you have to be able to find a place where you can have the conversation start in the first place. And that's a little bit trickier as we're all in our silos. This is Catherine. I wanted to leave you with just one last note, John, because we appreciate your time so much with us. And I wanted to leave you with this thought. We actually got to have dinner at uh, one of our fellow students' house last night, and his 16-year-old son came home and had organized a march with three different high schools in the state of New York, and they marched all the way to the Trump Tower. It ended up being 700 people. And he was so excited and so empowered that I just wanted to to leave you with some hope for that generation at least for us it gave us some hope that that coming generation is going to be a tipping point well that is great to hear and you know students walked out and protested at west seattle high school yesterday and also at garfield so nice the high school students here are doing the same thing it's amazing and that is a positive thing we appreciate you looking at the larger system with us you can learn more about Affluenza and John's other work by visiting timeday.org and happycounts.org. Join us for the next Sustainable Business Fridays, where we'll be speaking with Carrie Krasinski, author, lecturer, educator, and executive director of the Network for Sustainable Financial Markets.
Bard MBA in Sustainability. Lead the change. Learn more at bard.edu.